Hello, and welcome to another episode of Decisions That Matter, a public procurement podcast brought to you by Procurated. On this episode, it is our pleasure to be joined by author, director, consultant, podcaster, and all-around great procurement mind, Darren Matthews. On this episode, we have a great discussion about nurturing and hiring the next generation of procurement leaders, the future of procurement technology, and much more. Darren has also been deeply involved with NIGP, the Institute for Public Procurement, over the years, and Procurated is happy to announce that we are partnering with NIGP to donate $5 to the NIGP Member Scholarship for every review you write on the Procurated site. Click the link in the show notes or visit procurated.com slash reviews to get started and get back to the community. Thanks and hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Decisions That Matter podcast, where we meet with leaders from across the procurement community to discuss innovative and strategic ideas. Because when it comes to procurement, every decision matters. All right, welcome to the Decisions That Matter podcast. I'm your host, Alex Stonehouse. Uh, joining me today is my co-host, Bernadette Alani, and we are also joined by procurement expert, Darren Matthews. Uh, Darren, why don't you give us a little bit of information on your background, how you got to where you are today, and also thank you for joining us today. All right, well, thanks, first of all, for having me, Alex. Bernadette, great to be working with you and procurated, get to know a little bit more about uh, what you all do. So a little bit about myself, I was just talking to one of our children who are all adults at, at this point about, am I retired yet, dad? And it's like, no, I'm not really retired. I just do a lot of different things. I, I do not get up and go to an office every day like I did for 30 years in procurement, but I stay busy with uh, working for, in the digital procurement space for a software company out of Europe, uh, Negometrics, Mercel kind of a part-time role with them, do a lot of their training. And it's really been an eye-opener for me, not just learning more about digital procurement, but also working with a generation that are more the age of my own children, a younger group. At 57, I think I'm the godfather of Negometrics. Everyone else is under 30, but I I enjoy it. But um, I also have a faculty role. I teach uh, procurement and supply chain for University of California both the Santa Cruz and Berkeley, and also uh, Portland State University I'm from Portland, Oregon. So uh, just kind of hand my, have my hands in a few things now after 30 years in procurement. And uh, I like what I'm seeing. I like what I'm doing and very happy to be uh, working from home here in Las Vegas. And um, from what we hear, you have a new book coming, right? So keep them busy there. Yes, uh, that falls under other duties as assigned, Bernadette. <laughs> I did uh, recently sign a book with uh, Taylor, or sign a deal with Taylor Francis for a riveting book on logistics and transportation management, uh, an area that I've worked in in the past. I'm very passionate about. I think it's exciting. It's underrated, and we were able to convince a publisher of that as well. My co-author is Dr. Linda Stanley from Arizona State University, of course, one of the best supply chain schools in the country, and she's just great to work with. I have a history of... Uh, partnerships with Dr. Stanley. So I'm very excited about this. It should be out in the fall of 2021. So I'll be working on that as well. Uh, now, some of that it will be from um, our pool site here in our backyard in Las Vegas. So just full disclosure. That's awesome. Um, and we'll 
link, uh, I guess the book's not out yet, but for people listening who I'm sure are going to want to have updates about it, link to be able to follow you on LinkedIn and um, get updates on when that's getting published. So exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I think all of us saw last year during the pandemic, just how important the supply chain and logistics really is. You That kind of uh, terminology was something that I'd probably not a lot of people knew about beforehand, but all of a sudden it was in the, the normal vernacular. People who are just having normal day jobs all of a sudden know about like the logistics and supply chains of their grocery store and when things are getting shipped between governments and which government's doing a deal with another one. So definitely topical and something that I think will continue to be really important in the, in the near future and the distant future as well. Agreed, Alex. And it, what's interesting about the last year and a half during the global pandemic is you you heard the term supply chain more on national news networks and in the New York Times where you really had to go to back to page uh, 14 at the bottom to see supply chain in the back um, of a paper in the past. Now it's just you know front of mind, front page news, and it's been mentioned more than ever. So I guess in a way that might be you know, some type of uh, positive that kind of has come out of this past year and a half. So one of the things that we also saw last year was um, a lot of different governments were um, putting a lot of their money into actually acquiring PPE equipment. That meant that some of them had to put um, like hiring freezes in, or they were maybe not replacing people who were retiring or, or leaving as quickly as they would have liked to. Um, but when we, you and I talked in the past, talked about how this next generation of kind of upcoming procurement professionals does seem to have a lot of talent and a lot of promise. Can you talk to us a little about that and what makes this next group of people so special? Yeah, I'm super excited about this next generation, the current generation of procurement and supply chain professionals. I see a ton of talent out there. I see it in our classrooms. Uh, when I teach, I see it at conferences. I you know, see new hires from different governments across the country. And it's really um, kind of a purposeful group who've chosen procurement. They may have went to college and have a degree in a procurement related field or supply chain field. They've made a choice to join the profession. And uh, I think there's a, just a ton of opportunity at every level, federal, state, local, government. And I think the talent is there. Of course, this generation, um, you know, whether it's under 30 or really any age group, but this uh, generation of professionals definitely bring um, the A game when it comes to technology input into their work you know, probably want some flexibility, this generation more so than mine, which was the eight to five on the 13th floor, Monday through Friday. And by the way, you had to wear a tie every day in downtown Portland, you might get to wear a dress shirt without a tie on Friday. I think that's really uh, not our generation that's coming up. I think they want, uh, they want good flexibility. And uh, they also care a lot about the community, things that uh, organizations typically value, things like uh, equity and inclusivity in the procurement process, uh, sustainability, um, impact to their communities. They want to make a difference. So yeah, I, I just think uh, I'm just really continually impressed with the level of talent I'm seeing out there. And so when an organization has an opportunity, uh, a luxury, if you will, to bring on uh, a position in procurement, there's just so much to choose from. When it does that, that sense of purpose that seems to be so strong in this under 30 Gen Z, like whatever, whatever title you kind of want to give to it. I do think that lends itself um, to the public sector that it's like, well, whereas before maybe different groups of people were just look, had different motivators and we're looking for 
just like different ways that they can make an impact, but like the, the wanting to help sustainability, wanting to help create more inclusion, equity, like those kind of things for that to make systematic change, which is what a lot of this group is motivated by, that public sector is the perfect place for them to be. So I feel like that alignment kind of seems like it could happen in the next couple of years, which is really exciting considering what this group brings to the table. As you mentioned, like technology, um, just like a long future sure ahead like you know what I mean like I know Alex you were going to touch on um a lot of the retirements and that what is it called the gray tsunami yeah, we talked about the, uh, the silver tsunami which silver is tsunami. The, the term the retirees that are all kind of going out at once and there's there's a big debate from a lot of the governments we talked to of if they have five people retire in a 30 person department do you replace them with five new people do you replace three of them and then spread the work across the rest of your team do you try to replace some of them with some type of new technology or something like then a lot of it comes down to budget and what you're able to do just in terms of what you have money to do but it's an interesting question on how you do replace that silver tsunami i love that term and uh, like oh gosh probably the past decade uh, at the federal level for procurement and acquisition we've referred to this as the grain of the federal workforce but I like the term silver tsunami um, because I think that there's, uh, like, like I mentioned, just a ton of opportunity. And I think that organizations are doing both. They're bringing on uh, new people. They're bringing on new technology, for example, whether that's digital procurement, digital supplier rating, use, doing things in an automated fashion that we used to do manually, but you can do both. And there are budget you know, challenges out there. So you really have to make some good decisions as a procurement leader to get the right tools and the right members of the team on board. I do think the events of the last year has have accelerated that a lot too, that maybe some of that technological advances that were budgeted and planned to happen over the next like three, four, five years, just the having to work remotely and like the challenges that came with the pandemic really, I think accelerate a lot of that technology. I don't, would you agree? I definitely agree. I've seen that with organizations uh, across the world, because we work with a lot of companies in Europe and the U.S., but certainly here in the United States, maybe sped up that process a little bit for implementing a digital procurement system, whether it was ours or a competitor. A lot of uh, opportunities out there, free offers, and I know we've all seen them. So folks are getting on board quicker than they would have thought. So in a way, maybe that's another silver lining of this um, crazy pandemic we've been involved with. But yeah, certainly that's sped up. Yeah, kind of going back a little bit to, you know, this next generation of public procurement professionals as they're entering the workforce. Um, I know in your position, you're working with a lot of these younger people. You're also networking with the organizations that they are potentially joining. What do you see in that landscape? What are some of the things that employers are doing a good job at? What are some common mistakes that you see people making? Um, would love just to hear your perspective on, on what that landscape looks like. Sure. see a lot of opportunities out there, and I'm kind of a geek in this space, so I kind of look at the requirements of public and private organizations and their hiring practices, but I am seeing a lot of them look at hiring in a different way, through a different lens, if you will. So it's not um, painting ourselves into a corner by saying you must have so many years of higher ed or county experience and you have to have a professional certification. Those are great things, but it could limit my candidate pool. And so rethinking um, some of the other skills that we want to bring, uh, teamwork, collaboration, people skills, soft skills. We hear a lot about the T-shaped worker where I have technical expertise is kind of the upright of the letter T. Then I have these other skills that go across the top that balance me out as a worker. And they're not all going to be uh, procurement specification writer, you know, writer of contracts. 
again, great technical skills, but there's more to it than that. And I think organizations that I've seen that really um, are doing a good job of bringing in new talent or even mid-career professionals are looking at these other skills and what they could bring. Um, frankly, I've had really good luck over the years um, hiring when you kind of take off the traditional hat of, hey, you have to have these specific things, um, you know, and, and kind of broadening the requirements, broadening our horizons and our opportunities. One of the best uh, managers I had, she was a construction contracts manager. She was a psychology major, uh, which I personally think is a great degree to be in procurement is psychology because you deal with suppliers and internal folks. Uh, I had another uh, employee from uh, the fast food industry that really brought you know, a high level of communication, customer service skills with no public procurement background. And they did a great job. So um, yeah, I think we just, it's an opportunity to rethink. In your experience in the government space, when people put, you need six years of experience, eight years of experience, is that like a hard rule? Once you put it on the paper, like that person has to have the six years. I know in the private sector, it's more of a suggestion. So like, for example, after being in marketing for two years, I got a job that the listing, I think probably said need five to seven years of marketing experience. And I was like, ah, I read the description. I feel like I could do that. Okay. And I applied and got the job, even though I had half of what they were asking for. Um, is that sort of, is it a little bit stricter in, in the uh, public sector, do you feel? It can be stricter. I've seen it uh, be strict. And in that situation, Alex, someone, for example, yourself as a great candidate, I have, as an employer, painted myself into a corner and I might not ever see your resume because someone who did initial screening really took that five to seven years, you know, at its face and uh, didn't allow for any flexibility. And I think that's unfortunate. I really do. I think this is an area to learn from our private sector counterparts and from our other colleagues in the public space that are allowing um, maybe desired qualifications. For example, uh, a certified professional public buyer, a CPP, B, is a real common certification. It's a great one to hold, but if I put that's a desired feature or the ability to attain in the next three years, then I don't shut the door on candidates who would be awesome at the job, but don't yet have that certification. So, but in, um, to your question about the minimum qualifications or MQs, you sometimes hear that referred to, whether I'm looking at a supplier or an employee, um, the government, uh, you know, I've seen in the past has a tendency to uh, write very restrictive requirements that don't end up paying off for, for them. And I think that's a lesson to be learned. Yeah, it's an interesting challenge because the, it's, it's funny, like the real requirements for someone who's great in procurement is probably more like they're super driven, they're easy to get along with, they um, are really good at solving complex problems like they're yeah. ability, they're able to segment their work and attacks problems separate like the actual skills you need to be great are super hard to translate into like a resume or a cv or something like that so very yeah. true very true i love that tip though of of just that change instead of requiring the certification just saying like this is an expectation that we're going to have of you and within three years of you joining that it's like that is a small change that you can make that just completely opens up the pool of candidates that you can that you can choose from um, and in the grand scheme of things you'd rather someone that has great communication skills great collaboration critical thinking and um not that not to say like anyone gets certification but it's like that's a smaller 
uh, hurdle to get over of getting a certification that it is to teach some of those skills. So kind of like weighing the, the risks there that you'd rather have some of those soft skills when you can get them to the, the hard technical skills that they need. Uh, so true. So true. And I'm a big proponent of certification. One of my first mm -hmm. books is on professional certification. I hold several for many different, um, you know, uh, organizations. So I'm a big fan and I'm known kind of as a certification geek. But when I hear my colleagues say, oh, chief of procurement must have a CPPO, a certified public procurement official designation prior to hire, I'm, I don't agree with that. I think that is something to attain. I think it's a very uh, great certification, very credible. There's tons of research out there saying that it'll increase your earning capacity, um, you know, and your hiring uh, ability or uh, all those types of things. It's a very much a positive. It just, uh, it's a line in the sand that uh, I, I just choose not to draw. Do <laughs> you have any insight into the, the, I guess like internally in these organizations as they're writing these job descriptions, they're creating their hiring requirements, all those sorts of things. What is some of the internal dialogue that needs to happen to create these sorts of changes? I guess maybe the better question is what's like, the, is there red tape that's preventing this? Is there people that just need to like drive this change forward? What kind of are some of the things that happen internally there? Uh, there is a bit of red tape involved with working uh, with human resources, getting a job requisition, and if you have an automated system, for example, writing those requirements, and I've done this many times over the years, but I think it, it really needs to be a collaboration. I think the worst thing we can do is say, where's that job description from three years ago for senior buyer? I just want to upload that document. Uh, don't do that. <laughs> you know, meet with your team, meet with your colleagues, meet with your, uh, uh, your peers from your local NIGP chapter. What are they doing that's making them successful? And let's rethink that and don't just keep doing the same old thing. Uh, let's uh, take a look at that. Is there some improvements that can be made? Can we uh, either relax requirements or uh, reword them, adjust them so that we get the best candidate pool and get the best talent? Because it really, at the end of the day, that's what we should be uh, seeking when we have the luxury of a hire. Yeah, no, totally agree. Are there any, um, and then maybe, I love that example you gave of the person who had the background in like fast food and then they ended up getting into procurement. What did, is, is there any more to that story in terms of like what, I would just love to hear more about that situation and what did the rest of their career look like? Did they come in and like get those certifications and then like get trained on the procurement side? Um, I just think that's such an interesting example. Yeah, I do uh, remember that one, and I share that whenever I can. It was uh, actually in the Portland area. Their degree was in uh, supply chain management, so they had that, and that kind of got their foot in the door while they didn't have the experience really that was looking for. And as I recall, when you screen candidates, they probably barely cleared the minimum bar, but they really stood out in the interview. They just uh, blew the hiring committee away in the interview with their skills, their confidence, um, you know, you can just feel that uh, like an organizational fit. And when they left, I talked to the other committee, my CFO, I think I had another hiring manager. I'm like, wow, this person would knock it out of the park if given the opportunity. And they did. Uh, they were hired on, and we had the language at that time, the ability to attain CPPV certification within so many years. Uh, they did attain that. They actually went on to get a, a graduate degree in supply chain as well and are st still doing very well. And it's people like that <laughs> that replace people like me 
um, with this silver tsunami. Of course, I say silver, uh, my hair would be gray, but my head's shaved. So um, anyway, <clears throat> the hairless tsunami, maybe I'll call myself that. Yeah, I'm part of that club too, so. <laughs> to, to pivot a tiny bit, you have a great podcast called The Evolution of Procurement. So you've had the pleasure of talking with some of the kind of movers and shakers, the big names in procurement over the last um, year or so. What are some of the kind of standout trends, Ben, that you've seen pop up when talking to that group of people? Are there is there anything that stands out to you as and that for the next year or two, 2021, 2022, that anybody in procurement should really be thinking about? Uh, there are some themes that um, resonate, you know, with the folks I've had in the podcast from around the world, uh, from the UK, from uh, India, Australia, really been a lot of fun uh, hosting that uh, that podcast. But I think that technology is going to continue to be a common theme. We're hearing that the use of technology and it driving a lot of the innovation that we're seeing, what we call sometimes digital transformation of procurement and contract management. But the other theme I'm seeing is really the uh, equity and inclusion in the procurement process. I spoke with uh, Bill Cooper from the University of California, their chief of procurement in his long uh, distinguished career and how he has, has seen that advance to where it is today. Of course, he's in California, um, but I think it holds true for the rest of the country and even certain you know, other parts of the world. I spoke about diversity and inclusion to a European conference uh, last year and they were very receptive to the idea of how do we better diversify our spend and create this level playing field that we've talked about for a lot of years, but I don't think that we're there yet. I think there's a lot of work to be done in this area, and folks like the University of California, they established a small business advisory council uh, made up of members of the LGBT business community, African-American Chamber of Commerce, you know, folks from every area of our business community to really say, hey, how can we do a better job of inclusion I think that's going to continue here in the U.S. We see organizations, even in the last uh, several months, conducting disparity studies uh, from um, Illinois to Florida to Texas uh, in the Portland area. We're seeing those, hey, how are we doing in this area, which is what a disparity study does. Are we really providing a fair, open, inclusive opportunity for all businesses, or are the same large companies getting 90% of the spend, which sometimes we see in a disparity study. So I think that's going to be uh, the, the big area, you know, at least for me to keep an eye on here in the next, you know, five to 10 years. Yeah, that's a, that's a great answer. And we've seen a lot of that ourselves too. And the, the cool thing that has emerged out of a lot of these discussions over the last year is that it really is also like kind of a multifaceted topic or something that needs to be attacked in the sense that in the past, some governments have attacked it on the supplier side, but trying to get more diverse suppliers in. Some people have done it on their own hiring, so trying to hire diverse workforce for their own government. And then the ones who are really seem to be succeeding now are the governments where they're doing it in both places, right? So trying to make sure in their own internal hiring processes, they're bringing in um, a diverse group of people to work for the government who have a variety of um, experiences and different kind of like melding those life experiences together. And then also flipping it to when they're looking at suppliers and granting contracts and doing all that, uh, making sure that that's done kind of fairly and in, a, in an open way where everyone has a chance as well. So it's definitely cool to see that progress. It's very cool. And I like uh, the fact you brought that up. That's the one-two punch that we need absolutely. You know, I kind of focus a bit on the supplier side, and I think that's important, but definitely inclusive hiring practices. Um, when I'm building my own team in procurement or in the public sector, that that is so important. And I think there's, you know, um, it's, it's been cool 
seen uh, the progress in my 30 years in this area, in, in, in this industry, I should say. So I think we've come a long way. I just think we have a ways to go. I don't think we should ever be to where, yeah, yeah, I think we're doing really good on our supplier side and our hiring practices. It's always an area um, to look for ways to improve and be more inclusive, have this diverse workforce, diversify our supplier base. I'm working with a couple of organizations now in the San Jose area and doing this very thing. And I think it's, uh, yeah, it should be top of mind for all of us. It's great to see that I know some places are even rewriting some of their requirements on the supplier side of what you need to have done previously to get reward, awarded a contract. There was one place we were looking at, um, and I won't say where, but the their law was basically you had to have done three jobs for the government to get the next to get another government job. So then if you were a new a new small business or um maybe a minority owned or woman owned business that's three years old or something, you, there was literally no way to get into working for the government because you, there was no way to get those first three jobs. Cause you, it was like a chicken and the egg situation. And so if you couldn't get your first job, you couldn't get the big job that required you to have three. So um, I know some places are going back on those and changing those out so that you can have a bunch of private sector experience that allows you to then have those people vouch for you and get the public sector. Contract. Well, Alex, that is key. I have seen that. And you said you're not going to mention the organization's name. How about the initials? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Um, but I've seen that as well. And that is why on the supplier side, we should be asking for experience and not making it more difficult for small and diverse suppliers or startups to earn our business, looking at uh, overall experience, not just corporate experience. How long have you been in business? Uh, I've seen those requirements exclude a lot of otherwise qualified businesses. I'm working with uh, NIGP, the Institute for Public Procurement right now to rewrite some of their uh, language on uh, diversity and suppliers because there's some misconceptions. Oh, they're not experienced. Uh, I have to hold their hand. They're going to cost more. Uh, really, uh, what I say are myths when it comes to working with small and diverse businesses. They are, in fact, qualified. They're certified. They're licensed. They're bonded. They're in business. And they needed an uh, opportunity and a fair chance. And uh, that's a great example. It must have three projects. Well, when are they going to get those projects? They might be my best supplier solution, the highest level of service at the best price, at the best value, which is what I want in procurement, yet I've shut the door on them. If I do, and I have seen the exact thing you're talking about, Alex, and I still see it today. A lot of times those, especially the smaller organizations, you're getting their best team. You know what I mean? That it's like they're every project means the world for a company that's in their first couple of years that it's like, you're getting their like a, a team, a hitter, like they're going to give you their best shot. That's so true. You really get the priority. You get oftentimes the principal or the owner of the company mm -hmm. if you look at design services. A few years back, I was reporting to the board of regents at Portland state university. Um, I reported on supplier diversity for the last year that I was there. And I was asked, how much is this costing the university? Again, just the misconception that small and diverse businesses cost more. And my response was, uh, we're actually saving money. We received a high quality of service from these uh, contractors. They're very experienced. They wanted to get their foot in the door. They have oftentimes lower overhead, smaller margins, and we actually got a better deal and a better value for our money for the university. So sir, we saved money. We, it didn't cost us anything. Well, thank you so much, Darren. This has been so wonderful to speak with you today. Thank you for sharing all your knowledge with us. We like to close with one final question to all of our guests. 
Um, is there anyone who has made a particular impact on your career that you would like to give a shout out to that maybe has opened a door for you, helped you get to, to where you are today, given you that the best product of your life, you know, whatever it is, someone who's you'd like to give a shout out to from your career? Bernadette, I've had a lot of great mentors, but one that stands out for me actually got me into procurement, and that was a former supervisor on the maintenance crew. His name, uh, Dick Hubbard, he has since passed, but he helped me out a lot, uh, not just hiring me, but helping me get into procurement as a temporary buyer and the fleet department. And up until that time, my public service was limited uh, to picking up roadkill. And he saw potential in me, he believed in me, and uh, helped me get into procurement. Just a quick story, uh, it was called career development. This is when I was working in Eugene, Oregon. And he had to sign off as supervisor and he goes, well, come in during lunch, I'll help you fill this out if you're interested in this buyer position. And uh, he asked me, he goes, well, do you have purchasing experience? I'm like, uh, not really. I, until that time I washed dishes and done some really you know, manual labor type of work. And he said, well, don't you buy parts for your own car? I said, oh, yeah, sure, fan belt, oil filter, you bet. He goes, oh, that's good. And so under supervisor comments, he wrote background in automotive procurement and he signed off. So help me get into procurement. I've uh, been in there over 30 years. Who, uh, who knew that the, the uh, I called it possum patrol technician because we've had to pick up a lot of possums in Eugene, but the, the possum patrol person would go on to be president of NIGP. So thank you, Dick Hubbard. That's a great story. And uh, it proves you just need that one break and then you can go on to do some great stuff. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Darren. This is a great episode. I think our audience is really going to love it. We'll make sure to uh, turn everybody to the show notes and make sure we link them to everything that you have going on. Thank you again for joining us. This was, was really great. Appreciate it. Thank you both. Really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for listening to Decisions That Matter. This podcast is brought to you by Procurated, the leading supplier evaluation tool for procurement professionals across the U.S. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you prefer to listen. See you again next time.